Good morning, church. Good to be together around God's Word in that passage that was just read to us. We'll be looking at that in a moment. Just hang on. There's uh, Tim uh, McKee. Uh, during his Olympic career, and going back many years now, he won three Olympic medals, all of them silver. All of them silver. His, friend, his friends actually decided to call him Silver McKee. Now, he wanted to win a gold medal. He just didn't quite get there. But it was the one in 1972 Olympic Games in Munich, Germany. He had the closest near miss one could imagine. It happened in the 400-meter individual medley where he was matched against the Swede Gunnar Larsson. Both recorded an Olympic record time of 4 minutes, 31.98 seconds. And there was a general assumption that a dead heat would be announced with both swimmers being awarded the gold medal. However, after a consultation that lasted about eight minutes, the judges decided they would use timings taken to the thousandths of a second. And so by this standard, they proclaimed Larson the winner. McKee was said to have been two thousandths of a second slower, losing on the margin of 0.002 seconds. Now, the decision provoked all kinds of controversy. As a matter of fact, changes were made to the sport uh, later on. And as a result of that race, the rules were changed to declare a dead heat between racers whose time was the same to a hundredths of a second. But for Silver McKee, the change came too late. But can you imagine being that close to a gold medal, two thousandths of a second? He almost won a gold medal. Almost. And while we may be thankful for the almost situations in life that did not happen and we were spared unnecessary heartache and pain, uh, almost is a word that smacks of missed opportunities and fumbled chances. It's a sad word, really, right up there with nearly or next time or just about. He almost got it together. We almost worked it out. She almost chose not to leave him. He almost graduated. He almost made it to the big leagues. I made it the whole day without saying anything sarcastic. Well, almost. <laughs> I didn't even make it an hour, to be quite honest. I caught a fish that was this big. Almost. Almost. Only six letters but such a potent word. Why is there such a wide gap between he almost and he did? Max Lucado says this, he said, Jesus never had room for almost. With him, nearly has to become certainly, sometimes has to be always, and next time has to become this time. Almost may count in horseshoes, but with a master, it's just as good as a never. And that brings us to our passage this morning in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Now, in hindsight, chronologically speaking, we should have looked at this passage in 9 last week prior to tackling the passage that we did look at last week in Luke 14. We really should have done Luke 9, but then again, I would have had to preach on that very difficult passage instead of Pastor Dan. Dan so it worked out quite well. 
(laughs) And he actually handled that passage very, very well. The truth is, there ain't anything easy about most of the passages selected for the series on Follow Me. A study could have rightly been called Looking at the Hard Sayings of Jesus. We saw that last week. We'll see it throughout our time this summer in this study. Uh, and we'll see it this morning on what Jesus says about discipleship. And so if you're not there in your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. We're going to meet up with three guys who are traveling with Jesus. And just as last week's passage in Luke 14 is part of what is commonly called the the travel narrative, as Dan noted, these verses also follow within that. They also fall within that. But it isn't simply the fact that Jesus is traveling, but where is he traveling to? What's his destination? That's what's most significant. And so I want your eyes to go back to verse 51 just for a moment before we look at this passage, Luke 9, verse 51. We're introduced here to what is the turning point in Luke's gospel and in the life of Jesus, all right? Verse 51, as the time approached for him, meaning Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, this marks the last year of Jesus' life, and Jesus is completely aware of this. He knows that arriving in Jerusalem will mean his death on the cross. What if he almost went to Jerusalem? What if he almost died for our sins? No, no, Jesus was all in. For it says Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, or more literally, set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus firmly decided to go to Jerusalem where he knew what awaited him. It was there in Jerusalem where he would be betrayed, he'd be falsely accused, he would be convicted of crimes he did not commit. It was there in Jerusalem he'd be beaten, spat upon, mocked, and finally crucified, yet he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Folks, it was his choice to die. And so as Jesus is on this journey now, going to Jerusalem, we have a snapshot of three rookies, perhaps caught up in the emotion of it all, who were walking along the road with Jesus. They figured, it might be a good thing to follow Jesus. And so these three wannabes or would-be followers of Jesus have no understanding, really, of what it meant to follow him, what they're about to find out. Now, giving them the benefit of the doubt, these three guys come with good intentions. What's going to jolt us a bit this morning is Jesus' rather blunt responses. All right, first man, first man that we encounter here, I will call Mr. Enthusiast. Mr. Enthusiast, he says, I'm excited to follow you as long as it doesn't make me uncomfortable. All right, verse 57, Luke 9, verse 57. As they're walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. You see the eagerness here, the enthusiasm? I kind of liken it to the guy who comes forward at every altar call. Right? And he comes forward on the very first stanza of Just As I Am. I mean, he doesn't even wait for the song to be over, the hymn to be over. He's up front, and he's saying, I will follow you. I will follow you wherever you take me, Lord. 
I remember back in the 90s, the days of, of attending Promise Keepers with a bunch of guys um, from, uh, from the church in Portland, Maine. And uh, these guys, uh, as they were at this conference, were very moved, very moved by the speakers and by the different sermons. And they would have said, I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. Then from the crowd to the home, where his wife isn't all that impressed that he's excited about this speaker and what he said and that speaker and what he said. She just wants him to stop working so much. She just wants to be heard by him and, and loved on and cared for. and She just wants her husband to step out of his comfort zone. She wants her husband to join her at church, to be her soulmate, and live for something much bigger than leisure and the prospect of self-advancement. Something bigger than just living for retirement. Now, enthusiasm's good. It's a starting point. But the Christian life isn't lived there. It isn't about the thrills and the frills. And you notice here what Jesus says in verse 58. He's not overly impressed by Mr. Enthusiast. Look at verse 58. Foxes have holes, birds have the air of the air of nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he must have gone to say what? <laughs> it suddenly dawns on Mr. Enthusiast, I'm going to be following a homeless man? Jesus lays out the conditions for following him. And for this man who's eager to travel with Jesus, he needed to know that he wasn't going to be staying at these five-star hotels and to rest his head on the soft pillow. No, no, no. He was going to be laying his head on some hard rock who knows where. So Mr. Enthusiast shouldn't uh, be all fooled by the big crowds. He shouldn't be inspired by the miracles or drawn to what he thought he would get from Jesus by being up close to him. Because this road to Jerusalem was going to be harsh and it was going to get worse, not better. And this thrill seeker needed to know the cost of following Jesus, that he literally would be homeless. He would get up each morning not knowing where his next meal would come from. Now, I need to point out something here regarding this eager follower, and it's going to also apply to the next two. Jesus deals with individuals as individuals. Jesus deals with individuals as individuals. He still does. And what we may know of this man volunteering to go wherever Jesus goes may not be apparent for us on the surface, but Jesus knows. But I think the issue that this man's facing is one we all can relate to, even though we got to figure it out and God help to figure it out of what the, on an individual, personal basis what it means. But I think we all can relate to this because we can say, easy enough, I will follow you wherever you go as long as it doesn't inconvenience me too much. I mean, we, lo we love the comforts of life. And consider how much time and energy and money go to keeping us comfortable. Consider then the time left while we're doing all of that, the time left for following Jesus. Corey Tamboom called true discipleship as driving shallow tent pegs. 
And what she meant by that is we need to be ready to pull up the pegs and move where God takes us. Don't drive them in too deeply. See, the issue, folks, isn't what we own. It's what owns us. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? God wants to tailor these words to you personally this morning. But I ask you this question, and I ask myself it. If it came down to it, would you choose comfort or the cross? Don't answer too quickly. How is following Jesus more about what you get rather than what you give? Do we serve Jesus for our goals or for his goals? Now, here's the real, here's the, here's, here's the rub right here. How much does it cost you? How much does it hurt to follow Jesus? I mean, let's be honest. For most of us in this room, following Jesus hurts only a little. Not so in other parts of the world. For example, Jim Dennison, true story, Jim Dennison was serving as a missionary one summer in East Malaysia. And while he was there, he attended this small church in the village. And one Sunday during the service, a, a teenager came forward to announce her decision to follow Christ and be baptized. During the service... Dennison noticed some worn-out luggage over on the side leaning against the, the wall inside of the church building. And so after the service, Dennison goes up to the pastor and he asks, he asks about the luggage. What's with the luggage there? And the pastor pointed to the girl who had just been baptized and told Dennison, her father said that if she was ever to be baptized as a Christian, she could never go home again. So she brought her luggage to follow Jesus cost her something. How much does it cost us? Now, we don't know if Mr. Enthusiast continued to follow or he went his separate way, but my guess is that he was a follower of Jesus. Well, almost. Almost. We come to the second guy, Mr. Someday. Mr. Someday. He would say, I'd love to follow you, I just have some other matters to take care of first. Let me get back to you. Someday. Verse 59. Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, by the way, burying the dead in Jewish circles in that day was more important almost than anything else in life. To bury his father, this was no trivial matter, but the fulfillment really of the obligation to honor your father and mother. And that's what makes Jesus' statement here so shocking. Verse 60, Jesus says, let the dead, meaning the spiritually dead, the unbelievers, let them bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And you really go, well, that's kind of mean. You're a little harsh here, Jesus. Huh? You're this guy who wants to bury his father. What, no time for him to even grieve? Now, an important aside, this verse is not saying believers should never attend the funeral of an unbeliever, even of their own family. That would be a wrong application of this, just by the way. And I remind you again, Jesus deals with individuals as individuals. Jesus knows something here that we do not. So Jesus is not giving permission here to disrespect our parents in order to serve the Lord. All right, what does this mean? Let me give you my shot at it. And that day, and that day, burials were often performed 
the very same day the person died. It was done within 24 hours. So if this man's dad had really died, it would seem very unlikely that this man would even be walking with Jesus on the road in the first place. He would be at home preparing the burial. He wouldn't be walking on the road with Jesus. So it's suspect here as to what he's getting at. Because this is what I believe is going on. This man's father hadn't passed away yet. And perhaps he wasn't even close to death. But it's just an excuse to put off following Jesus someday. And to what appears to be rather unkind words from our Savior's lips, let me tell you, there are many possible explanations that are given to this. You can, you can check it out yourself. You're not going to lack any explanation. Okay, there's all kinds. Oh, Jesus didn't mean this. What he meant was, now, let me, we just need to be careful here. We need to be careful that we don't trivialize discipleship in an attempt to offer some explanation for the harshness of Jesus' words. You know, kind of get him off the hook. You know, you know, let's cover for Jesus here. Oh, he didn't really mean that. He meant this. As if Jesus needs our help. Jesus isn't saying, don't take time to grieve. He isn't saying, skip that person's funeral. He isn't saying, you can dishonor your parents. Okay, let's just put that out there. But I think the man's reply lets us in on what's really going on. Go back to verse 59 again. What does he say? Lord, first, first, let me go and bury my father. First, let me take care of my family responsibilities. Then I'll follow you. Let's not tone down Jesus' requirement for following him. I mean, following Jesus is such an urgent matter that even the most intimate family responsibilities, church, take second place. Mr. Someday is hoping to put off at any decision to follow Jesus because there are other matters he must take care of first. Can you, re can you relate to that? Oh, I have, some, I have some personal matters to attend first, but then, Lord, you'll have my all. I just got to get my kids through college. I just got to get through college myself. I just got to get through my kids being young and all the stuff they're doing. I just need to get married first. I just need to figure this out in my life. Then I'll follow you. All this first. Then you have me. Someday. What other loyalties? I ask myself this. What other loyalties are competing with your loyalty to Christ? What commitments are preventing you right now from doing kingdom work? How are the many things, and we have them, how are the many things going on in your life keeping you from the main thing? Do you have a sense of urgency? Church, do we have a sense of urgency for the kingdom work? That's what he's pointing out. Following Jesus demands a sense of urgency. Now, speaking of that, you might have heard of the world's longest engagement was between Octavia Gillian and Adriana Martinez from Mexico. Octavia popped the question, and Adriana said yes. It was when they were both 15 years old. They couldn't quite decide when to get married, so they kept putting off the wedding day. You know how many years later? They finally got married when they were both 82 years old. 
<laughs> 67 years later, they decided to get married. Not a whole lot of emergency there, right? Following Jesus shouldn't be like this. At some point, you have to say, I do, and then do it. Are you all in? Now, if you were to walk by a lake and you saw a kid drowning, would you say, this kid's drowning, I wonder what I should do. Wait a minute, I need to go bounce off this, bounce this off some other people to see what I should do here. Maybe I need to go home and weigh the pros and the kinds. I just need to talk to some other people because this person's drowning. I mean, I know I need to pray about it and I'll even call some other people to pray about it. No, you wouldn't do that. You'd act. You'd do whatever you could do in your power to save that person drowning, right? See, we know what it is that's keeping us from being all in. We know the things that are getting in the way of following Jesus, yet we delay. Has God been speaking to you about a particular area in your life right now? And the problem for you isn't what to do, but following through on it. Is it time to stop procrastinating? What Mr. Someday needed to bury was not as dead but it's the indecisiveness. Would he follow through? Now, we aren't told what happened to Mr. Someday, but my guess is he's just another example of a follower. Well, almost. All right, we come to the third guy, Mr. Divided. Mr. Divided. He says, you know, I'm going to follow you, but I'm not sure I can quite let go of what I have back home. I'm going to follow you. I'm just not sure I can quite let go. Verse 61, still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Now, that request seems reasonable enough, right? The guy just wants to go back, say goodbye to his parents, his friends, his girlfriend, his siblings, say goodbye to his dog, whatever. He just wants, all I want to do is just go home and say goodbye. I mean, why deprive his friends and family uh, the opportunity to wish them their best and, and throw them a farewell party, shed a few tears? I mean, it appears rather innocent. Jesus deals with individuals in an individual way. And he sees into the heart, and he replies, verse 62, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit or useful, is really a better word, is useful for service in the kingdom of God. So there it is, folks. God's against goodbyes. No, that's not what's going on. Jesus' reply here is really what gives us some direction for understanding this. Jesus uses a very familiar proverb in that day. It's of a, if a farmer, the proverb uses of a farmer, if he's going to plow a straight line, he had to keep his eyes on where he's going and not on where he's been. Right? If he keeps looking back like this as he's plowing, rather than looking at some fixed point on the other side of the field, and he's kind of like doing this, he's going to be all over the place. Might even go in circles. It's kind of like, like driving, right? We, we're looking for the next street we need to go on. Now, what works best for Donna and me when traveling by car on a long trip is to have her drive and me be the navigator. I am the better navigator, and she thinks she's the better driver. <laughs> okay. No, no, she, she really is. She really is. All right. I'm admitting it. All right, she is. 
Now, as a navigator, it's my job to look at that GPS and follow it and give her instructions along the way. Now, if, if, if she said to me, okay, what are we looking for next? What's the next route? What's the next street? She doesn't want to hear me say, well, you know the road we were just on back there, Route 64, and that name of that road? You want to know where we just been? That's not very helpful. She wants to know, what are we looking for next? Where are we going next? Not where we've been. And many are living that way. Where have we been? What's back here? And sadly, we can do, we can do a lot of that in the church. Right? We keep looking back to what was in the church, what we once had. Following Jesus is about looking ahead to what he has for us. It's looking to the future to get our eyes on what's there and move towards it. I mean, reminiscing is fine. Nostalgia is pleasant. But you just can't live there. In a Peanuts, uh, Peanuts comic strip, Snoopy's recalling the past. And he, and he says to himself, Oh, I remember those summer evenings years ago at the Daisy Hill Puppy Farm. <laughs> we used to sit around and sing while someone strummed a banjo. After a long sigh, Snoopy sits up and he says, Well, actually, none of that's true. No one knew how to play the banjo, and we didn't actually sing. We just howled a lot. <laughs> we just howled a lot. It brings to mind the old saying, things aren't the way they used to be, and they never were. Too often, we're living in the past. Uh, that memory has kind of romanticized. That may never been as great as we remember it, but in whatever case, the past must always be the foundation upon which we build in the present for the sake of the future. We've got to keep moving forward, folks. Otherwise, we're divided. Do you have a divided heart? Do you know what it is you should do, but you just can't quite pull the trigger on it because you keep looking back here? Are you still hanging on to something of your past? Actor Alan Alder wrote a book titled, Never Have Your Dog Stuffed. <laughs> he was once asked about the title. In an interview, he explained the significance of the title. It was when he was eight years old and his father was trying to stop him from sobbing because the pet dog had died and they were burying him. And so his father said to him, maybe we should have him stuffed. <laughs> and they did. And they kept, the, they kept the stuffed dog on the porch. And the delivery men were even afraid to drop off packages. But Alder then said this. He then said this. There are a lot of ways we stuff the dog, trying to avoid change, hanging on to a moment that's past. Profound words. So you, you really can't follow Jesus by continuing to look in the rearview mirror. Learn from it, sure, but we can't keep looking in the rearview mirror. As has been said, we should all be concerned about the future because we will have to spend the rest of our lives there, right? Don't stuff the dog. Deal with whatever it is you need to deal with back and get on with life. Say your goodbyes. Perhaps God has spoken to you recently about some area of your life you got to settle some, some account with sin back there. It just keeps coming back, and it's nagging at you, and it's guilt-ridden. It's just driving you insane. You might have to deal with that in order to move forward. 
for once and for all. Maybe it's making right uh, with someone, uh, something of the past there. You just kind of put it off. You said, I got to deal with that. Maybe it's letting go of some past hurts. Something you know you need to let go of so you can move on. I'll follow you, but first let me go back. Deal with it. Following Jesus demands we look ahead, stay focused, and press on. You might recall in Pilgrim's Progress when Bunyan's everyman Christian learns he's living in the city of destruction. He's burdened with his sin, remember? It's right at the very beginning. His only recourse is to flee the coming wrath. He must flee from the city. He must run up the hill. Now, he doesn't stop and take a nap first. He doesn't discuss the matter with his friends. He doesn't consult the pastor or or some counselor. No, he just runs up the hill. And if you remember the scene, his wife and kids are on the side, and they're shouting at him. No, don't do this. And Christian literally sticks his fingers in his ears to drown out the cries of his family. Why? Because he doesn't love his family? Yeah, he loves his family. But he looks forward, and he's shouting at the top of his lungs, life, life, eternal life. Sometimes we just got to block out the noise. Sometimes we just need to put our fingers in our ears. There's a lot of opposition out there. We need to block out those telling us not to do it. Too radical. You're going to lose everything. Not worth it. Block it out. We must block it. That is if we want to be a follower of Jesus. Now, we don't know if this third guy, Mr. Divided, let go of the past and moved on with Jesus to the future. My guess, like the other two, Mr. Divided followed Jesus. Well, almost. In each of these examples, it really comes down to this. A mark of a disciple is one who leaves no room for excuse, compromise, or half-heartedness. A mark, a characteristic, a trait of a disciple is one who leaves no room for excuse, compromise, or half-heartedness. This passage forces us to ask some hard questions this morning. Have you been choosing comfort? Are you waiting for someday? Is your heart divided? Are you saying, I'll follow you, Lord, but first, what's your first? What's my first? Are you a follower of Jesus? Almost. Since the 1940s, the Ad Council has been the leading producer of public service announcements, and of the thousands of commercials they have produced, their work for the Don't Almost Give campaign has been particularly powerful. And I know they lay it on pretty thick, and it's not all about the guilt that some of this can do. That's not even my point this morning. Guilt won't take you very far. It's got to be conviction of the heart. We say, I want to follow through. But in this, in this ad campaign, Don't Almost Give, one ad shows a man with crutches struggling to go up a flight of concrete stairs. The narrator says, this is a man who almost learned to walk at a rehab center that almost got built by people who almost gave money. And after a brief pause, the announcer continues, it almost gave. How good is almost giving about as good as almost walking? 
Another ad shows a, an older woman sitting alone in a room and she's staring out a window and the narrator says, this is Sarah Watkins. A lot of people almost helped her. One almost cooked for her. Another almost drove her to the doctor. Still another almost stopped by to say hello. They almost helped. They almost gave of themselves. Shall they lay it on thick? I understand. But almost giving, they say, is the, is the same as not giving at all. And each ad ends with a simple direct message. Don't almost give. Give. Church, don't almost follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Let that sink in. Let's pray. God, as you do in the lives of these three individuals, as you deal with them in an individual way, and that's the same you're going to do with us this morning. I don't know what the personal application is. I, I have to wrestle with it for my own life. I can't say what it is for everybody else in this room, but I pray we do the hard work of allowing you to speak into our hearts and minds and wills so that we take away the very personal message you have for us this morning. We ponder it. We pray about it. We're not just guilt-ridden here. But it goes to a conviction where we say, I must do this. For knowing you is to give up a lot of other stuff. Help us to sort that out as to what that is, I pray in Jesus' name.